This morning we look at uh, John chapter 3 verses 1 to 15, from religion to relationship, from religion to relationship. As we continue our series in John, we we come to this, one of the most well-known encounters, one of the best-known stories in the Bible. And by the way, sorry, it is time for Kids Church. Thank you, children, with your leaders. Forgot, got carried away with the song here. <laughs> so we come to this one, one of the best known stories and, and well known encounters in the Bible between Jesus and Nicodemus. When it comes to most religions, there is this underlying assumption. It is false, but it is nevertheless an underlying assumption that we must all do something on earth, something good on earth, in order to earn our ticket to get into heaven. As long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you will get in. By our very own human nature, We want to be able, our pride says that we need to be able to earn God's favour. So that when we reach that moment, when we are knocking on heaven's door, we want to be able to front up to God on our own goodness so that God will feel compelled to tell Peter, who guards the gates, to let us in. That is sort of the common thought out there. Just about all religions of the world are based on this system of goodness outweighing badness and so, yeah, you're going to make it to heaven. It is flawed, but nevertheless, that is the common thought. When Jesus came, he caused such a stir because he wasn't about religion. In fact, to give you a bit of a background, Christianity, even though it is considered a religion today, did not start off as a religion, but as a movement of God called the way. But it was turning to a religion when Emperor Constantine, the Roman Emperor, made it the official religion of the Roman Empire right about 320, 325 AD. And he utilised this religion, this new religion, as a way to rule over the people of the empire. Suddenly the church and government were locked together. There was no separation between church and state. Suddenly, if you wanted to have a position of power in government or in community, wherever it was, you needed to be part of the Christian religion. And for more than a thousand years, that's the way it was. However, Jesus is not about religion and certainly not about institutionalised religion. That is why he had a run-in with the religious people of the day. 
the Pharisees and others because they were, for the most part, outwardly religious but inwardly empty, bankrupt. The Gospel of John is is written in such a way that with each chapter as the story unravels, as it completes, John touches on a certain aspect of the way that Jesus tackled the common religious view of the day. And, and with each story, with each, the words of Jesus, his actions, he is peeling another layer off the onion, as it were. With each encounter with Jesus, people are transformed and moved from something stale to something which is alive. Because Jesus wants all of us to move toward a relationship with our Heavenly Father. He doesn't want us to hide between, behind the walls, behind the, the, the facade of religious activity. He wants this life to be transforming, regenerating, life-giving, rather than something that is stagnant and putrid and dead. Now in the passage before us we read about Nicodemus who was a very religious man who had a hard time realising the difference between what we call religion and what is a relationship. At this stage in his life, he was, like the majority in our day, an admirer, but not a genuine believer. He must have had some courage, he must have mustered up some courage in order to come and see Jesus. Maybe he, was, he went there on his own, maybe he was part of a group of Pharisees who says, okay, he drew the short straw and says, okay, you go and talk to him. He didn't have perhaps enough courage to come by day, but at least enough to come by night. And this is the way that Nicodemus starts out because we know as we come to the end of John that he moves from this obscure admirer to certainly a believer by the end of the, of the story, by the end of the Gospel. So let's look at, first of all, at religion, verses 1 and 2. There was a Pharisee, a, named man, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Religion recognises a higher power, recognises there is a God, recognises that God every now and then intervenes in human affairs. And religion is about, again, mustering up enough things to do so that God will answer us in one way or another. It should not However, religion is largely based on human effort 
But it should not surprise us that God is not impressed by the things that we try to do to impress him. The things that impress us as human beings are not the things that will impress God. For example, position is not enough. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, one of the 70 who comprised the Sanhedrin. In essence, he was a member of the Jewish Supreme Court. Outwardly, he lived a life above reproach. He was part of the religious elite, a distinguished religious position. Jesus called him the ruler of the Jews. He was one to whom Jewish people turned to for spiritual answers. He was recognised as a spiritual advisor, a religious guru, the one who spent his life memorising, studying the scriptures. You could have handed it to them. The Pharisees were right in many areas of doctrine. They were devoted. They devoted themselves to understanding the word of God in the Old Testament. But they made one primary mistake. They externalised religion. They sought almost the respect of the people. They made sure that people respected them. And Jesus locked horns with them on this issue. This is why holding a position, a certain position, even within the church, does not save you. Being a deacon does not save you. Being an elder does not save you. Being a pastor does not save you. Being a scripture teacher does not save you. Or, let's go outside the church and being a volunteer for the rescue of blind bats is not going to save you. Certainly get involved in all of these things. Clean up the environment. Help wherever you can. Do all of those things. All the things that God, all the passions that God puts in your heart. But don't expect to use these things as a way to impress God or worse still, to impress people and use that as an entry to heaven. Popularity is not enough. The very name Nicodemus means, actually means well-liked or popular. By all accounts, this man was well-known and respected in the community, like we said. As a recognised spiritual leader, mums will probably point to Nicodemus and tell their children, when he was growing up, Nicodemus listened to his parents. He is a good man. Be like Nicodemus. As you're probably aware, this week the world was reeling from the news of two well-known personalities, one a fashion designer, the other one a well-known TV presenter and chef. Well-liked by all, by all that we hear, popular, 
funny, life of the party, that type of thing. Let me tell you that irrespective of how many friends you think you have or even genuine friends or how popular you are with people following you in real life or whether it's on Facebook or wherever it is, this is not enough to impress the audience that really matters and that is God. Being recognised as a Christian person does not save you because being born again is not about popularity. In fact, many times it works the other way. Just ask Israel Falau. Being a Christian might actually get you into a spot of bother and trouble. Piety is not enough. Piety is not enough. Piety is taking religious life seriously. If anyone knew a lot about the Jewish religion, that was Nicodemus. He knew and lived what was considered to be right and wrong, religious to the core. He went to great lengths to obey not only the law but also the man-made rules or traditions that kept them from breaking the law. The Pharisees went to drastic measures to make sure that they obeyed the letter of the law. They fasted and prayed and studied the scriptures. And when Nicodemus said, we know, we know, we know what you're talking about, he, he was letting Jesus know that he had a certain level of, of spiritual knowledge. But the reality is that Nicodemus did not know and Jesus will point this out to him. He was all about doing but ignorant about deep spiritual matters, spiritual truth. It is sad reality but the truth is that he was religious but he was lost. I have heard so many people say, I live a good life, I try to do what is right, I go to church sometimes, etc. But you see, pious living, however you interpret that, does not save you. You can do all the things that religious people do and still be without Christ. Let's move from religion to relationship, verses 3 to 15. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water. And the Spirit. As soon as he arrives to see Jesus, he speaks of his admiration for Jesus in his greeting. And Jesus didn't reply with 
Why, thank you for the compliment. He just gets straight to the point. Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knows every heart. We know that from verse 24, chapter 2. So even before he could explain why he was there, he cuts straight to the heart of the matter, which was his heart. And this term, born again, is, you hear it, newspapers like to bandy it around a bit, a common expression, you use it quite a lot, and most times it's, if the media uses it, it's used in a disparaging way, unfortunately. And because of this, to say you were born again has actually become somewhat trite. Even if the term is used a lot today, I don't think people understand what it means, just like Nicodemus. They don't get it. Being born of water and the Spirit is an interesting expression. And the best, that we can, the best way we can explain it in the context in which, in which John, in his Gospel, uses it is that he was talking about John the Baptist who was baptizing and he was baptizing in the river jordan a baptism of repentance but john also said one will come after me one will come who will baptize in the spirit so one is one of the needs obviously to for someone to be converted to be born again is there has to be repentance which is what the water symbolizes It is God's Spirit that quickens our heart to see our sin, to see our need of repentance and to seek the forgiveness that only God can give. That is where the Spirit is at. And when you think about it, in the structure, we go back to the structure of the way that John writes, These words, this story and the words that Jesus uses seem a little bit out of context. We know what comes in chapter 4. And we think that Jesus should have uttered these words in the next chapter when he meets the shady lady at the well. Someone who had made a mess of their lives, and they would be welcoming a chance to start over again. And you must be born again seems to apply to people like her rather than to someone like Nicodemus. And this is why I think Jesus' words confuse Confused Nicodemus. The common religious thought of that day was that all Jews were privileged people. For simply being born a Jew, you had an entry visa into God's kingdom. And here, Nicodemus, the privileged, amongst the privileged, 
a Hebrew equivalent of a college professor, a federal judge, a bishop, and all these things rolled into one, is hearing that he cannot enter God's kingdom unless he is born again. It's like an immigration official when you get to the border after you hopped off the plane, you get to immigration and declares that your visa is invalid and you're denied entry into the country. That's what it must have been like, Nicodemus. So let's talk a little bit about this new birth. What is it all about? Well, firstly, it is a spiritual birth in verses 6 to 8. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Many times... Through the Gospels, we know that Jesus uses all of nature as a canvas for his teachings. In other words, he used natural, physical objects and principles that mirror spiritual truth. Why not? He's involved with both, right? Physical and the spiritual. And here Jesus uses the illustration of the wind in order to teach us this wonder. Just as the wind is unexplainable in many ways, you see its effect but you cannot pinpoint its source, even so the new birth is a divine act controlled by God. God alone gives new life. New birth is supernatural act that changes people. You can see its effect. But in many ways, it's difficult to explain its origin. And that is the key to the entrance in God's kingdom. That is the key to being born again from above, trusting in Jesus. You must be born again. And the one who is born again is granted eternal life. He is born from above. And because he's born from above, that's where ultimately he will end up. Now most unbelievers see the effects of Christianity in our world. Whether they recognise it or admit it is another matter. We can see the effects of the wind happens when they see a transformed life and then the families are transformed. Having said that, seeing someone else's life turn around and not yours, it can be a little confronting sometimes and that's why we hear a lot of people speaking disparagingly about people who have been born again. Oh, look at you. Aren't you supposed to be born again or something? Why are you doing that? And so it goes. This is why the Christian's life, we have to be careful, we have to be wise in the way we live our life. 
front of the world because we are a light and salt. We are a witnesses. We are a testimony of the, a living testimony of the unseen reality of God's sovereign grace. A new birth is a sovereign act of God. And being born again is not a mental or an intellectual or even an emotional decision. It is not, it is not a, a new, you beaut moral lifestyles of do's and don'ts. Being born again is a spiritual transformation that takes place when someone surrenders their life to Jesus Christ in faith. It is a spiritual birth because now just as you carry your mum's and dad's DNA in you when you were born, when you were conceived, being born again means you carry your heavenly father's DNA in you. It is a spiritual transformation which comes only through the regenerational power of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's a spiritual birth. So it is a spiritual birth from above, verses 9 to 13. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, you speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but, you, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. How can this be, says Nicodemus? For all of his theological learning, he still lacks spiritual insight for deep spiritual matters. He sees Jesus' words in a very literal and obviously almost, almost absurd way. He's got to learn that God's creative power isn't just limited to the material and the physical, but extends well into the spiritual. That is to say that there is another level that is true in nature. It's true in nature and it's true in the scriptures. You need to follow my argument here. You cannot understand the lower levels without understanding or grasping the higher. We can understand from the top down, but we cannot go the other way. It will never work. Bottom up, it just doesn't work. Okay, let, let me explain another way. The way... By the way that I'll explain it by the way that organisms work. Organisms as a whole, including their DNA, which are within the organisms, are totally indifferent to life 
itself. The organisms, they don't care. They're indifferent. All these chemicals and all these things that come together and all of this, they don't care. DNA is not life. In other words, DNA is, 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 is not a life by itself. It is the, it is the lines, it is the, the program and all that type, but it isn't life. They, they, this is what people say, or DNA. They, they, we've discovered the source of life. No, you haven't. You, you might have discovered the code and all of that, but you haven't understood life. You don't know what life is. You can't even define life. Simply by adding the proteins and substances and adding cells and how they communicate and all this type of stuff, you, you, you're, you're, not, you're not defining life. Because chemistry is indifferent to life. There's something bigger than the chemistry and it cannot be accounted for on the basis of simply biochemical materials and their interactions. The upper can explain the lower, but the lower can never account for the higher. So it is also in the spiritual realm. It is from above. It is God revealed. One of the mistakes that we make is that, and and Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, he sort of got onto this. He says, our, we call God our Father, and, and we just and, and because we simply project the image of our earthly Father, we project that onto our heavenly Father, or that we call God. He was he didn't believe in God, but be it so, he's simply saying that we we project our human nature onto God. If humans are like this, then that's the way that God must be. So our Father's God, when we say God the Father, He is just a better version of our earthly fathers, if you believed Sigmund Freud. What you're trying, that's the mistake. You're trying to explain the higher in terms of the lower. It simply won't do. It won't suffice. It won't suffice. We need a total reorientation, a, a total re-understanding that it is God who reveals truth to us and therefore it makes sense of life. He is the source of life. That's why we, when we say he is the source of life, that's what we mean. It's life from above. And lastly, through the Saviour, verses 14 to 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So far we have a few images that Jesus is using in his interaction with the teacher of the law, with Nicodemus. He uses the imagery of birth, of wind, and now we go 
to snakes. And, and this third picture comes from Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 21 in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel rebelled against God once again, so God sends serpents and many people were bitten by these serpents and died. Moses pleads to God on behalf of the people and God tells Moses to make a brass serpent, a snake, and lift it up on the pole so that people would see it. Make a brass serpent and lift it up. Those people who said, oh, that'll never work, and didn't even bother to look at the snake, they died. But the people heard the instructions, did what Moses told them, said, look at the snake and you're going to be saved. You'll be healed. They were healed straight away. And that is a story of faith, isn't it? What, you mean me just looking at, it's going to, yes. No, I can't be, yes, it is. Just look. And, and the verb here, lifted up, actually has two meanings. And that's the beauty of John. A lot of the times he uses one term, but he means another, or you can use them concurrently. That's the beauty of the way he's written. It could mean crucified, or it could mean exalted. And we know that in Jesus it's both. We know that through Jesus it was both. The cross was not the end of his glory, but the means of his glory. Exalted through the cross. And please understand this. Please understand this. The solution to the serpent problem was not in killing the serpents. The solution to the problem was not in passing snake laws or pretending they were not there. Worse still, the solution to the problem was not starting a snake, friends of snake preservation society, whatever. That was never going to do, was it? The answer was in looking by faith at the serpent that was lifted up. Looking at that which God provided. Why can't we put a brass snake here and another brass snake there? Let's just start a whole church of the brass snakes. I'm sure that's happened. No, provided only one. That's enough. That's enough. If you haven't already realised, the world has been bitten by sin and the wages of sin is death. But, is God, but God, in his goodness and mercy, sent his son to die for us. How are we saved? By looking to him in faith. And by doing that, the sting of death is gone. If Nicodemus 
as we conclude, if Nicodemus, Nicodemus the best, is the best that religion could produce and he needed to be born again, then Jesus' words certainly apply to all of us, doesn't it? Because when we get to chapter 4, we'll say, well, I'm certainly better than that woman. I haven't been divorced five times. Not yet. Maybe there's still hope. Really? He's saying, no. We're going to get to that story, but here it's about someone who was good. It's hard to fault him. Except at the matter at which Jesus put his finger in his heart. Like us, Nicodemus was born in sin. He needed a second birth, spiritual birth. He needed to change the focus of his faith from religion to a relationship with Jesus. And only Christ could provide the forgiveness and the eternal life. Let me ask you, what about you? Have you grasped this truth? Have you been born again? Have you looked to the cross and nothing else for your salvation? Have you repented of your sins and are walking in communion with Christ? If you haven't, I would love to have a a chat with you after our time here to tell you about what you need to do. But it's more than what you can do. It's accepting what Christ has done. That's the beauty of the gospel. Let us sing, Jesus.